I didn't want to live out of a suitcase anymore. I wanted to have something a little bit more firm and something that you can count on the next day. I just wish somebody said, you know, there is no such thing. You can plan for future and whatever you do, you can go ahead and do that. But there is no stability. You can plan for security. But even then, you know, something may happen that may alter the, the outcome. I'm Peter McCulley. That's Victor Kratz, the former world champion ice dancer and Olympian. Victor's returned to British Columbia from a stint in Europe coaching hockey. We'll talk about figure skating as well as his time coaching hockey players when Today in BC continues. Get fast access to breaking news by signing up now to Black Press Media's free newsletters and stay informed with all the latest news delivered directly to your inbox. You'll have access on any device so you never have to miss out again on the information you need to know. Thanks for being with us today, Victor. Well, thank you for having me. In the 1990s, everyone in Canada was familiar with the names Victor Kratz and Shay Lindborn, winning 10 national skating titles, competing at the Olympics, winning the World Skating Championships in 2003, after which you retired. How did you become interested in figure skating to start with? That's not a, so straight of an answer, simply because as a young kid, you know, my parents facilitated different activities. They said, hey, you want to go skiing? There's the slope. We'll get you some skis. We'll get you set up and off you go. We did swimming. We played tennis, really multi-sports faceted. And then we ended up picking what we wanted. And I was a downhill skier because we were living closer in Europe to the slope. So you'd literally get out the door and you go down to the slope and off you went. And that was always fun and exciting. And then we moved to a flat-lying area, and then you'd have to drive three hours to go to a decent ski hill. And so mom goes, hey, you know what? There's a local rink, and this is an outdoor rink. So you'd be out there starting October till March because that's when it was the coldest. And then that place was turned into tennis courts. And I started out with learn to skate, and then I gravitated right away towards hockey. And if you think about in the 70s, the hockey was a lot different. You had to be a goon. You had to be big and tall. And, and I didn't grow until I was 16. I was like the shortest guy where my friends were picked on the hockey team. And the head coach said, no, I don't want you. You're too small. You're going to get hurt. I was left out of the group. And my friends still progressed in hockey. And then I transitioned into figure skating just because it was still on the ice. And I could see my friends indirectly, although we were on separate times. But there was still that commonality. Next thing you know, things progressed. We went to a couple of local championships in Switzerland and then went to the Swiss National Championship. That was kind of exciting. Then we decided we were going to come to Canada. Before we had moved, we actually had vacationed in Vancouver. I think as people do, they're curious. They drive around, rent a car. I remember we rented it for local distance and (laughs) it was a new car and we brought it back. And I think the dealer just literally almost panicked because we took it out at... (laughs) I think I had like 400 kilometers. We brought it back at like 8,000 or something like that. <laughs> and we've driven through all of BC, actually never making it into Alberta, but borderline to the Rockies. And then at the very end, through Vancouver Island, but we went back to Europe. And then we applied for the papers and immigration and all that. We were able to come back as immigrants, really, for grade 11. And then grade 12, I moved to Vancouver because in Vancouver, they had a sports school. And Sentinel is still a sports school to this day, and they base everything on academics as well as sports. So you go to school half day, the rest of the day you do your sports. And it may have changed a little bit since then, but 
Yeah, and that's that's always multi-sports up until I was probably 14, 15. My dad, he was a doctor, a veterinary. My mom was an educated dancer and actress. So there were never really any plans for us. We could decide what is it that we wanted to do. Where's our desire? And my sister and I were always given the opportunity to decide and develop and see what is it that your strengths are. And for me, I ended up staying within sports and it progressed very quickly. And before you know it, you know, you're on the Canadian national team. So that was kind of exciting. Your mom, Dagmar von Eugen, as you mentioned, was a dancer and performed with a German opera company, which I understand is a very old European opera company. Yeah, that's correct. It's in Berlin. It's called Komische Opa and is still around these days. And they're producing and cranking out talent all the time. It is, I would almost say, lesser known. It's not maybe as glitzy as some of the other operas that are out there. For my mom, it was a phenomenal opportunity. And you got to think back here. My mom is born in 1941, so it's during the Second World War. So as a teenager, you're looking at bombed out Berlin. And there wasn't really much left. You had the occupying forces, the American, the Brits, the French, and the Russians. And my family, as luck has it, part of it was in, in, in West Berlin. And my father's side, because they were farmers, they were on the east, at the time, my mom was given the opportunity to dance and perform and study the craft. And my mom was able to get the scholarship and sort of progress that way to the point where she was having some stints also in East Germany. But for that, she needed a special pass to enter the Eastern zone, the Russian occupied zone. My grandfather said, you know, who do you think you are in being able to cross? There's, you know, millions of people that cannot afford to cross Give me that document. And he literally tore it up right then and there. He says, you're staying in the West. You, you do not cross. So did your mom's background as a dancer have any influence on you with skating? I think when my mom suggested, she saw that I was really down on myself, that I didn't make the hockey team. So I think my mom was trying to find alternative solutions that are on the ice, at least. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I had some reservations going into figure skating. I think there were some preconceived notions of what it's like and for me especially so I gave it a shot I had a great coach it was a brother and sister team Mona and Petat Sabo and they were actually Hungarian who also had escaped from Hungary in the 50s because it was behind the Iron Curtain they were actually teaching their craft in Europe I was very lucky to have them because they were teaching the skating aspect they were also helping you daily life type thing putting you on the right path in a sense and they were phenomenal. Us kids, my sister and I, we were in good hands. We were with these coaches. And, and my mom and dad said, well, if you like to do it, just keep doing it. But always, please remember, you know, stay in school. And that is important because sports, that can be taken away. But your thoughts, your brain, how your brain functions, that cannot be taken away. So do both. You mentioned the coaches. At one point, you moved to Connecticut to be coached. And it's my impression there's a lot of figure skating coaches and the skaters go to them as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, that's still generally the case. I mean, if you look at our Canadian hero, Brian Orse, he's located out of Toronto. So a lot of people go and seek his expertise and they'll come from all over the world. You know, Brian has put together a great figure skating school and the concept works out and people come and seek his knowledge and expertise. So, yes, we moved to where the coaches were. And then before actually moving to Connecticut, we did a four-year stint in Montreal. Eric Gillies being from the Maritimes and uh, José Picard being from Montreal. We trained in a town called Boucherville. So it's just off uh, the island of Montreal on the South Shore. We're there for four years. 
And then it was time to move on. A short stint in California, Big Bear, where Big Bear Mountain is, like Arrowhead. So if you think of Los Angeles, it's above, behind Los Angeles. Uh, nice place, I guess, if you if you own a house there. But if you're just renting, you know, you were really a nobody and had no rights. You had no access to the lake if you didn't own property. So we could look at the lake, <laughs> but we could never swim. Then we moved to Connecticut and we had some coaches and these coaches happened to be Russian coaches because the Russian tradition of skating is so very deep. Our path was just different. And my skating partner and I, it, it was tough. It was always difficult to adapt to new situations and living environments and yet alone people that don't speak the same language as you. But it was phenomenal. We had a great ride. And Connecticut was the last stop. And then we ended up winning the Worlds, the World Championship, which was held in Washington, D.C. How did you come to partner with Shay Lindbourne? And did you know right away that you were going to make a good team? At the time, my skating partner, she was injured. She decided to come back to Vancouver. I remained in Montreal. And uh, Jose Picard and, and Eric Gillies, they said, we got a few partners lined up here. And I sort of said, you know what, I'd like to try out with as many different skaters that are out there as possible. I want to find the perfect match. If I'm going to do this, if I'm staying in Montreal, I'm away from beautiful British Columbia and I'm in Montreal. And don't get me wrong, Montreal is a fantastic place. The West Coast is a different style. And so for probably three quarters of a season, I traveled to different locations. I went to Toronto and I had people come in. We were skating just to trying out things. How does it work? How, is there a match? I wanted there to be a, as close as possible as a perfect working match to start out with you want to pick up where you left off and move on and so there are a couple of prospects that we tried out and they were not bad all the tryouts were done and there wasn't really anybody that I could really say yeah this is the person and our coach Jose Picard during lunch break I was having lunch at the rink she goes hey there's that girl out there she's just trying out she's a former pair skater you, you guys should just try out I think you'd be a perfect match she's you know slender build tall I think that would be a great match. Chiri's trying out with, with the other guy over there, and I think they're going to skate together. She's, let's just give it a shot. We'll ask her. She's here in town. So we tried out, and within the, I took like, I don't know, 10 seconds maybe, it was like, yep, this is it. That You know, I found my match, and she found hers. And I think it was something about that energy that came from her, like the... You know, there were no limits. It was just like, yeah, let's try this, let's do that. And it was like, oh, okay, yeah, sure, right. yeah, no problem, yeah. And right away, both of us knew, like, although we didn't really know each other, that this obviously could work out. So that's how the story went. As a competitive dance team, you pushed the envelope a bit. As I recall, a couple of times when you were competing, skating to Michael Jackson music, which was different, you did the river dance, which was really out there for figure skating. The music you chose always seemed to be a crowd pleaser. I even remember Papa was a Rolling Stone. Yeah. When you're an athlete, you hope that you're surrounded with the right people. So what does that mean? That you got the right choreographer, the right coach, the right sort of visionary, somebody that steers the boat overall and, and gives you a vision. We at one point connected with Ushi Kessler, which was the choreographer or stylist of Brian Orser. Actually, we were hoping to connect with her and she agreed to it. I mean, she was a busy woman and she agreed, yeah, I'll give you, you know, a few minutes here, a few minutes there. And then next thing you know, there was this great collaboration that was born. And she says, yeah, you know, I'd like to work with you guys. And I was like, wow, really? Like, this is phenomenal. And so it was Ushi Kessler, who's Austrian. She had moved to the States in the 50s, I believe. She was based out of Philadelphia. So Montreal, Philadelphia is only a couple of hours of drive. So we would drive down to see her. 
And again, our head coach from Montreal, fantastic woman, Jose Picard and Eric Gillies, they were also visionaries at the time. They had the most successful training center in Quebec. But I think at the end of the day, a lot of credit goes to Shillin. She would come up with these ideas and I'm going, no, I don't really like this music. Oh, I don't. Yeah. Do you have something else? And then she go, how about this? And I go, ah, kind of slow. You got something a little bit faster. I Shillin is a choreographer. She has Olympic and world champions. You know, she's, again, very special individual. So very fond of her and what she has accomplished. Victor, what prompted you to retire from figure skating right after the world championships? Something happened within me. I had achieved the goal. I was world champion. We went three times to the Olympic Games in 94 to Lillehammer, Norway, 98 in Japan and Nagano. And then 2002 was Salt Lake City in the United States. And during those last two Olympic Games, we placed fourth. So for me, that was a failure. I failed at my task. I I wanted to, if not be Olympic champion, I wanted to be top three. And that didn't materialize. He came fourth. Fourth is like, well, you're just outside of the medals, but you're not really down far enough. You're not fifth. <laughs> like It's like you fell between the cracks. That's what happened. So when we won Worlds, I think I achieved my personal goal, which was the next thing, you know, winning Worlds. And there was no direction beyond that from me. It's almost like you reach your destination and there was no dream beyond that versus my skating partner had always a dream to perform as a professional and to do all these things that you couldn't do within the rules. And for me, that somehow did not conjugate stability. I didn't want to live out of a suitcase anymore. I wanted to have something a little bit more firm and something that you can count on the next day. I just wish somebody said, you know, there is no such thing. You can plan for future and whatever you do, you can go ahead and do that. But there is no stability. You can plan for security. But even then, you know, something may happen that may alter the the outcome. I got to say that it's unfortunate that my skating partner and I split. And I think it was largely because of the disagreement of opportunities that were looming, that we could have taken, maybe cashing in on all those years that we trained so hard and to achieve results. But I didn't have that vision. And my skating partner, Shilin, she's a very successful choreographer these days in figure skating. Well done for her. And my path just went totally different, just because I was always told that education is such a large role And I hadn't really followed the educational path. When you retired, you switched to working in a marketing agency in Vancouver. What appealed to you about marketing? So I decided when I retired, I was going to go back to school. But now I'm coming back to school as a mature student. I went to BCIT. And in the meantime, though, all these other things also happened. Like I got married, you know, the year before in in Finland. And I told my wife, you know, I think Canada is the best place to live. And, And so... We came to Vancouver, and this is then where I ended up going to BCIT to study marketing. I think it was largely because I was involved as we were athletes. We were involved with different organizations, sponsors, and whatnot, so you get the feel for what it's like. But you're on the other end. You're the person that the company's sponsoring, so you're seeing it from the other end, not necessarily from the work side of organizing, sponsorship, of lining up all the ducks for a client. So I decided I should maybe work in the field of marketing, learn marketing, and then go into sports marketing. I'm interested to know what kind of projects you were working on, and did you keep your hand in coaching and training at this point? As I started also going to school, I was coaching figure skating. Again, I wasn't quite sure. I was in a transition phase. At the time, a friend of mine pitched an idea and he said, hey, I need you 
here's the product and we'll pitch this to a sponsor. I said, okay, this is great. This is sort of like learning on the job type thing. And if it goes all well, you know, this could be very successful. If it doesn't, well, you know what, then I still have school to go back to. The sponsor ended up taking the product that we had offered and there was a great work relationship that I had with a financial institution. And they said, well, if you keep going to school, then maybe there's some opportunities within the financial institution. At the time, I was just about to finish up BCIT. I worked for the Whitecaps. Then I transitioned to a smaller marketing firm. And there, again, I was exposed to some great products. I remember how do you revamp the P&E at the time. It was kind of interesting. I went to a sort of presentation that was offered by the Whitecaps for their employees at the time, the head coach came and spoke to the office. It was like a morale booster for the office employees. I'm like, yeah, I got to listen into this. And it was kind of interesting how he passionately spoke about his path. He was a soccer player, then ended up selling computer software, and then ended up going from one coaching gig to the next. And he realized that really being a coach is what his inspiration was. And I was sitting behind the desk going like, wow, you know, why am I in this cubicle? There's so many other things I could do. Like, why do I conform to how things are done if I could actually use my strength, which I've worked on over 25 years? Why do I just try to be so different and go a different route altogether? And it's going to be a lot more difficult. So I said, you know what, I'm going to go into coaching. And I didn't want to go back into figure skating, strange enough, but I went with the original sport that I originally wanted to do, which is hockey, which I wasn't able to do. I became a hockey coach specifically in skating efficiency and I've now transitioned into puck skills as well. My gig is, you know, making you faster, making you quicker, making you better. So it's uh, it's gone <laughs> it's gone totally different than I think I ever expected it to go and, and it's going very well as a coach. Yeah, it's fun to be back in Canada. When Today in BC continues, Victor Kratz talks about coaching hockey players in Finland and how life was affected there during COVID. Searching for a new home? Make todayshomebc.com your online home base. With easy-to-search listings and connections to local realtors, everything you need is under one roof. Powered by Black Press Media, you can search hundreds of local listings all in one place. Access the top real estate professionals to help you find the perfect home today at todayshomebc.com. Today in BC is a Blackcrest Media podcast. I'm Peter McCulley. Victor, how did you meet your wife, Mikey, a former national skating champ in Finland? Shillin and I, my skating partner, we were at the time training in a town called Lake Placid, of course, known for the 1980 Winter Olympics. We were training there because, again, our coach was located in the Lake Placid. And under normal circumstances, you wouldn't pick Lake Placid. It's in the middle of the Adirondacks. If you've ever been there, a fantastic location in the summer, you know, and beautiful in the winter. But year-round, is just a little different. Lots of transient people that come and go just because of a ski town. And because we were there training with a Russian coach, at the time, people came to train with Natalia Dubova. She was a Russian ice dance coach that had moved to Lake Placid and was living there and was coaching there. At the time, Mikey, my wife, came and she just was there for a week or so. She came on the ice and I skated up there and go, hi, my name is Victor. What's yours? And she goes, Mikey. I go, oh, I like Mike. She goes, no, it's not Mike. It's not Mickey. It's Mikey. Get it? I was like, 
okay, got it. And I just like, wow, all right, nice talking to you too. That was first introduction. And then, I don't know, we got to talk again on the way out from the rink. And it was a little bit a friendlier conversation. And I think what it was, I got her name right. So that sort of opened the door. She was only there a week. She left back to Finland. I mean, she came back with another skating partner. Unfortunately for her, she went to finish nationals again and her partner got injured and sort of her skating careers fizzled out because she's tall. When you're tall, you don't get many choices in tall partners. Usually they would have to be taller than you just to get the leverage for lifting. So then she remained in Lake Placid and, you know, we built this friendship and that's how I met her. It was just, I think, pure coincidence and just the intro. I think that she stood her ground. She knew what she wanted. And I think that was, to me, interesting. So that's how it went. But we never skated together. We never skated together in anything, really. Like, Shilin and I did our thing, and she did her thing. And it's just through a friendship, that's how it was built. So, Victor, you've just recently returned from Finland. You were there for about three years coaching hockey players. Tell us about that experience. Coaching hockey, you don't just wake up and coach hockey. There's a lot of research that goes into it. What are trends and styles? And and at the end of the day, it's based around efficiency. Hockey is the type of sport that is multifaceted. You have to see the game. You have to be a good athlete yourself. You have to have good hands. You have to be an efficient skater. A lot of people don't understand how difficult it truly is. You can have those that are just natural at it, which... Quite often, that is the best. But then when you get injured, then you have to sometimes relearn it mechanically. So that's tough. But then you have the ones that learn everything. So they may not be the most natural at it, but through learning and practicing, they become really good at it. And then even when they're injured, they're able to bounce back because they understand mechanics a little bit differently than somebody who is, let's say, naturally gifted. How I got back into hockey was in Vancouver. I was asked by a hockey professional, Todd Harkins is his name. He was the hockey director at the North Shore Winter Club at the time. And he goes, hey, you know, can you come in and run a few sessions? I think you have what it takes to coach in hockey. And like anything, he right away said, okay, sure. Even back then, I would always use video. So I would film and then show these young kids, okay, this is what you do. I think if you do this, you'd be more energy efficient and puck protection and all that. We always discussed that. You get the whole bag with me in terms of information. So before I left to Finland for the three years coaching in Vancouver, as I was working within the minor hockey association, so that's, you know, kids that are just starting on their path. Usually I would work with kids that are like, you know, 13, 14, 15, up to like 18, 19. You're sort of with the kids that you can have the most impact And those are usually the teens because they usually at that age, they decide, is this something I want to do or is this something I don't want to do? Eventually, when it gets into body contact, a lot of the kids say, no, this is not for me. I'm not the type that, you know, wants to get hit or get the hits. Then during the summer, there was another coach and he was running development sessions. He goes, hey, I'd like to hire you to do some work with some of the pros that I have. And I go, yeah, sure. We went out and he was running a few sessions, even for the Canucks. Some of the guys were on the Canucks team. I was like, wow, this is almost going to university level hockey in terms of hockey IQ versus, you know, in the minors. And it's like, wow, you know, this is going to be a challenge because it's a totally different understanding of how to move the puck and how you play the game. But fast forward, I went to Finland. I ran a hockey summer camp, and it just so happened that one of the managers who was running the rink, he was also the the president of the organization, and the organization is called Jokerit. 
So the Jokerit are a junior team. So the junior team is U20, U18, U16, U15, but then it trickles down. I was specifically involved with the U14, 16, 18, and 20 over three years. We started as one-year contract, and then they just renewed it. I understand that when Russia invaded Ukraine, that affected the KHL in Helsinki. Maybe you could tell us about that. The professional team, also called the Jokerit, but they were playing in the KHL. So the KHL being the Continental Hockey League, the counterpart to the NHL. And the moment Russia invaded Ukraine, the Finnish government stepped in and said, we don't want you to be training here in Finland. We will confiscate the building. And that's it. All sponsors literally overnight, like when they invaded it on February 25th, like by the 26th, 27th, all sponsorship had been terminated with this club. You could see signs being peeled off the building. And at the time you think, wow, you know, this is local, but it's a world event. And the junior team, which although weren't directly affiliated with the professional team, there was still money coming down from the professional team to build the juniors. So Jokerit, it used to be a Finnish brand. And they were playing in the Finnish league until they decided they didn't want to play in the Finnish league anymore. And this Russian oligarch had come in and said, hey, I'll buy the team. You guys play in the KHL. And everybody went, hooray, yeah, let's go. This is, you know, 20 years back type thing. Then, of course, the situation changes and everything is shut down. So even the facility that the juniors were playing at was shut down. You came to the rink, door is locked. It's like, that's not good. Then it got worked out with the government that, the juniors were allowed to keep on playing. The main rink is like Rogers Arena. There's the main rink above, but then you have down below in the basement, it's a bomb shelter. You have a practice rink. So this could be converted very quickly. And we kept on practicing. Everything goes in terms of learning experiences. What I learned in Vancouver, I taught and kept on teaching in Finland. And in Finland, it's European hockey is played a little bit differently. Hence, when it was time to come back to Vancouver, I decided to you know, set up shop there again. I reconnected with some of the former players that I worked with before leaving to Finland. And that's really exciting because we've remained, let's say, in contact over the three years and specifically over COVID. What did you enjoy most about living in Finland? It was a, a steep learning curve just because when you move from Canada, why would you move away from Canada? That's always my ultimate question. Having come back, I really appreciate um, the openness, how nice people are. Generally speaking, people are nice. You know, they ask you, you know, good morning, how are you? Thank you for coming or thank you and please. And maybe it's because I didn't speak Finnish. Finland is very similar to Ontario in the sense of, if you think physically, what does Ontario look like? Sort of rolling hills and trees and lakes. And that's what Finland is. Beautiful in the summertime. I mean, you have almost 20, 22 and a half hours daylight in the summer. You know, the days are getting longer and you really notice it. Like, what happened? I thought I went to bed, but it's daytime already. I like the people once you get to know them. I think that was the most difficult part. North America, everybody's sort of like easygoing. It's like you may not know somebody, but you can strike up a conversation and then you can decide, hey, I'm going to talk to this person again or I will never talk to them. And in Finland, it's a little bit different. They usually keep to themselves very reserved people. And I don't know if that has to do historically and uh, highly educated. I mean, you look at Finland, you know, most people will have one, if not two degrees, but that has to do with the government fostering and supporting education. So education is paid for by the government. When you go to school, which I find so unbelievable, you get a monthly allowance by the government. 
to go to school and the university is paid for. So everybody, if they have the opportunity, they go to university and most people do. At the end of the day, it's not Canada. People say, well, what does he mean? I go, well, we have so many more freedoms here that we don't realize we have until you actually go to a different country where they're, they're very strict with rules. For instance, as simple as driving down the road. Within the capital city, there are speeding cameras. The camera goes off. I had one ticket. It comes in the mail, and then it just becomes a question of going to court. In Finland, there's such a big issue with money laundering that you cannot just go and deposit money on the bank. Like, you can't just go cash on the bank. They're like, no, where's this money coming from? So my sons and my daughter, we opened the bank account. So youngest one is six, next one is 11 and 15. Yeah, no problem. But the documentation, the processing of opening this bank account, you're almost like, hey, don't you want my money? But it's like, no, nah, you know what? They're always like, well, if you get money on the account, where's the money coming from? It's all documented. And then anytime you do your banking, it's done through your social insurance number. You got to go through your social insurance number that, that links you to your bank account. Then you get the bank app. The social insurance number on your phone will communicate with the bank app. Then you can do your transfers and transactions, but it's all always monitored. You know, if you've never left the country, I think you may look at maybe freedoms being restricted, but I think we can live with this stuff. Speaking of restricted, when COVID hit and you're coaching hockey and there's multi-age teams, how did that affect the hockey team? You know, it was very interesting. I was based out of Helsinki being the capital of Finland, I guess. It's similar in a way to Ottawa. If you live in the capital, they always try to set the example for the rest of the country. The capital region, they were very strict in the sense of, you know, stay the distance away from people, don't mingle with more than two, three people. Well, you're dealing with a team, right? So at one point, our season was cut short. There were no practices. Like, we went halfway through the season the first year. So that would have been like 2019, 2020. We got to like February, March, and normally then you would have the playoffs. And all of a sudden, rink is closed no contact with anybody. You weren't even allowed to go outside and meet with more than three people or at the time even two people. Then the next year, 2020, 2021, it was the same thing. And we got to just before the playoffs and then it was halted. Then we started the playoffs and then it was halted. And then it was like, yeah, nope, we're having no playoffs. And it was like, well, okay, but you just told these kids they're good to go. And at the time, which was so strange, is that on the outside of the capital region, which would have been like, if you think of a 50-kilometer radius, outside of that, it was okay. Kids were practicing. They were even outside practicing. So all these other teams, they kept on practicing while us, who were in the capital region, were restricted. The team still ended up strong. I mean, they would have gone into playoffs, have done really well. And we said, hey, you know what, let's... Try a third season next year. So the, this past season, 2021-2022, we went to the playoffs and it was, let's say, normal. I think it was always asked if you're sick or symptoms don't come, stay home. Always. And we used to do a lot of testing, like those self-test kids at home. That was kind of fun, like to poke up your nose and you know go high enough <laughs> to make you tingle and cry. And then, you know, you, you got the result and if you're good to go, you're good to go. You had to get vaccinated because if you're not vaccinated, well, you wouldn't be able to leave the country. And if you think Europe being relatively small, you drive across the border to Sweden, you got to show vaccination passport, which was, again, an app. And as long as you had, I think, one vaccination, you were good. And I, in my case, I just went the full protocol because I was still got the second vaccination and then a booster shot because I'm always exposed to many different people. I realized while we've been talking here 
the number of countries that you've lived in or trained hockey players in or figure skaters, how many languages can you order coffee in? Well, according to my kids, I'm butchering the Finnish language. I'm doing an excellent <laughs> job at it because I'm mixing it half English, half Finnish. I always listen to my wife talk to my kids in Finnish at home, so they're duolingual, and they can switch Finnish to English very easy. So I, proficient, I mean, uh, coming from Europe myself, you know, German is my mother tongue, so definitely German, Italian, French for sure, because in Canada we speak French, and I've always spoken French. And then maybe some Finnish. It might be a little crude, but yeah, four languages... I think I could be ordering coffee and maybe scrambled egg and some bacon. And Californian. And California, of course, yes. <laughs> Before we go, tell us about the players that you're familiar with from the team and the players that you were coaching in Finland and how they did at the 2022 NHL entry draft. There's something really exciting in terms of the current draft. And some of the kids that I've worked with before leaving Canada, uh, Matsi Lindgren, he's the son of Mats Lindgren, who also played for the Vancouver Canucks. He was drafted to the Buffalo Sabres. I started working with him coming back now to Canada and being drafted for him by that team. I think it's a great start. There is three players that I worked with on the team, the U20 team in Finland from the Jokerit. Miko Matika, the Arizona Coyotes, signed them. Kolonomi, Nashville Predators, and Sulko Jantersul is with the Philadelphia Flyers. Those kids... You know what? They were right up there in terms of skills and ability and hockey IQ. And they're just starting out their journey. There's so much that they have to do. And they will once, you know, they get exposure to older players and playing style. So very proud of these kids and all the ones that are up and coming. You know, a dream is always to succeed and progress and grow as a person, as a player. And and I think you can do it provided you just keep your head down, work hard, and always be humble about situations and just keep working at who you are and just become a better person. I'd like to thank Victor Kratz for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts. Here we go.